Hello, everyone. I'm Rachel Hurley from Sweetheart Pub. Welcome back to Music Rookie, the beginner's guide to the music industry. This week's episode features a conversation with my friend Dan Koplowitz. He owns Friendly Fire Licensing. Friendly Fire started out as a super hip label in the 2000s, but now does sync licensing exclusively. Whether it's for commercials, blockbuster movies, art house films, or an array of online content, music supervisors reach out to him to find the perfect music for their projects. Now, in our talk, we discussed why this is a fantastic time to be looking for syncs. There are more opportunities right now than ever before with all the content being made. And he also gives advice on how you can get pitched and the format your music needs to be in for you to be taken seriously. So let's jump right in. Why don't you tell me how Friendly Fire Licensing started? Absolutely, I'd be happy to. So Friendly Fire Licensing, uh, which is the company I run now, grew out of a record label that I ran for the better part of the 2000s called Friendly Fire Recordings. Uh, turned out to be really, really easy to just replace recordings with licensing and the logo because they're almost the same amount of letters. Uh, I was doing the label for, yeah, I mean, starting in about 2003. And towards the end of the label, I realized that while sales were sort of going down and it was, you know, it was getting pressed into the label, I was getting more and more and more licensing requests for some of the artists on the label. Uh, so over the course of the next few years, I, I kind of pivoted. And these days, what I'm doing is I'm representing the catalogs of about 50 different record labels and publishing companies from around the world and working to pitch some music to get it into TV shows, movies, commercials, video games, stuff like that. Very cool. And um, since we talked last, I've spoken with Joe Rudge, who we are both friendly with. And Wonderful Joe Rudge. He was talking about how this is an incredible time to get sync licenses because there are so many different avenues to go. There's so much content being produced and so many different, whether it's like from your phone or Netflix, so many different streaming services. Um, do you feel that way too? Absolutely. I mean, the amount, the sheer volume of content being produced right now, you know, ranging from on one end, huge, uh, you know, blockbuster movies, major international ad campaigns down to tiny little indie projects. I mean, it's, it's, it's an avalanche. It's like drinking from a fire hose. I mean, you, in the same way that you couldn't watch every TV show out there if you had all the time in the world. Well, every single show, every single movie, every single ad, every single video game. They all need music to one degree or another. And, and here in the States, all of those music uses are licensed. They're negotiated. So there is the potential for income for all of them. Uh, beyond that, I think, given the way that the music industry has been affected over the last five or six months uh, with COVID, it's no surprise that certain aspects of, of the music industry are you know, on, um, on ice right now. Uh, I, I, I feel for my friends who are involved in live shows and touring and things like that. Sync has been effective to some degree. I'm not going, I'm not suggesting that it hasn't been. Certainly some of the movies and TV shows that they would have been filming over the course of the last few months haven't been. But there is still a tremendous amount of content being made. And I'm lucky enough that my little corner of the industry hasn't been it hasn't ground to a, com a complete standstill in the way that some of the other segments of the industry have. 
So I actually think this is a better time than any, in a way, for artists who maybe haven't focused that much on sync to date can take this time at home and really reevaluate what their approach is to, to getting stuff into, into content. So I have so many questions about all of this um, and a uh, lot I've thought of since we talked last. Um, do you have any um, certain things that people ask for a lot that people are always looking for genres that are more popular than others? What kind of stuff are you being asked for a lot that you can like give advice on? It's like, you know, if you have this kind of music, you need to be in here working it. Sure. Uh, I mean, my approach has always been I mean, the music itself. You know, I don't, I don't want the tail to wag the dog. It, it's all based on finding the right music for the right project. I try not to make it fit. It's not a throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks uh, approach. And one of the first things I've learned is if someone comes to me asking for a upbeat, happy song with male vocals, I'm not sending them a slow, sad song with female vocals. There's no faster way to lose your reputation. Obviously, certain genres get synced and get licensed more than others. Um, you know, avant-garde saxof solo saxophone probably isn't going to make it into a commercial for longer detergent. That being said, I, I am a big believer that every you know, every puzzle piece has its match, so to speak, and there is something for every genre. Uh, so, art, you know, artists who are working in more out there genres or stuff that's a, a little more unusual, I always encourage them to you know, find a TV show that has your type of music. Look up who does it and you know, track them down. Right, you know, look on the IMDb uh, and and you know, reach out to them if you feel your music would work for them. As far as sort of universal things, obviously stuff that's a little more pop-leaning generally does better. Uh, there's lyrical keywords that I see, particularly for ads. Uh, you know, if TV and film have slowed down somewhat lately, ads are going as strong as ever because people still want to drink. You know, Coca-Cola still has to sell products. Right. Uh, with ads, it's often very lyric-based. Um, so, you know, themes of happiness, uh, non-romantic love, mm -hmm. uh, swagger, attitude. Um, certainly we've gotten a lot of searches in recently about sort of uplifting emotional themes, togetherness, uh, home, resilience. Uh, and frankly, with Sync, I mean, ha having a song whose lyrics are too clever can actually work against you in the context of a 15 second ad. And you you don't want to be out in front of it. You don't want yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the, the, there are you know, some of the best lyricists of our time, you know, the, the Bob Dylans of our time who are telling this weaving a tale and telling a whole story musically. It's wonderful. The question is, can you compress it down into a, a, a catchy lyric about having fun with your friends? Uh, you know, that'll work for a commercial. Uh, so you know, sometimes things, sometimes you have to be a little broad and you have to be a little on the nose, uh, particularly for commercial sense. Um, it reminds me of uh, when I used to work for Joe, I was his assistant music supervisor on a couple of shows, one for Nickelodeon and one for Disney. And you can tell me if this is still the way that it works, but we got music submissions and I would sit there with a spreadsheet and I would go through and like list, okay, this, the, 
the uh, vocal comes in at this point, this much of it is just instrumental and then tag all the keywords for the instrumental part about what it sounded like. Was it happy? Was it upbeat? Did it have a, you know, a sax solo or a drum or whatever was in it. And a lot of times when we placed that music in these shows, we were only using the instrumental parts of the songs. Sure. Well, you, I mean, you touched on a couple things. First of all, the importance of having instrumentals on hand. Uh, I can't tell you what a bummer it is to miss out on a potential licensing opportunity because the instrumental is not there and mastered and, and ready to go. And it's it's always easier to do, you know, if you're a band and you're in the studio and you're recording, just take the extra time, get those instrumentals bounced out and ready to go because you, you'll be grateful if, you know, nine months down the line, you end up needing them. Uh, I mean, beyond that, I think you touched on something. I, I realize it's not the sexiest part of what we do, but having the tags, having the metadata is, I mean, if there's one takeaway from this conversation that I can you know, give artists, tag your stuff. I mean, treat your music, treat your library like a bonsai tree. I mean, it's got to be, it's got to be so meticulously uh, trimmed and labeled. Uh, my approach is, I assume that music supervisors are just getting, I'm talking about drinking from a fire hose. Everyone and their mother is sending music to these music supervisors. And while a lot of it is bad or mediocre, sure, plenty of good music out there too. So I want to do everything and anything that I can possibly do to maximize my chances of having them pay attention to the music and, and know who to talk to if, if they like it. And so that means labeling everything really, really carefully. First of all, and it may sound obvious, but who is the artist and what is the track of the song? Don't send something with a you know, whole chain of garbled letters and numbers. You know, clean, clean that stuff up. Um, who owns it? Is, it? is it one stop in the sense that you know, it's all with the artist, approval is easy to get, or are there publishers involved? Is there a sample in it that hasn't been cleared for use? I mean, are there any... Are there any potential stumbling blocks? Is it a cover? If so, who is a cover of? Who has the original publishing? What year was it done? Um, I absolutely will include tags in the music, uh, genre-based, lyric-based. You know, I, we get requests for things that sound like Bruno Mars, things that sound like Coldplay, things that sound like Madonna, whatever. You know, the, the more of those kind of a footholds you can build into the music, the better the chance is that a music supervisor will stumble back upon it a week or a month or a year down the line and say, oh, this is perfect for that search I'm working on. Is that metadata that you're putting in, or the, I'm sorry, the artist or the labels putting in like in iTunes, like just opening up the song and putting in those yeah. genre tags there? Is that where you're looking for those? Yeah. So, I mean, when I, the labels and the artists that I work with, one of the first things I'll do when we're sort of onboarding a, a new label is I'll send them kind of a style sheet, so to speak. And, you know, every company has a slightly different way of how they format it. I mean, I, you know, I need to make sure that our contact information is included because if someone likes a song and doesn't know who to talk to, you know, that's a dead end. Uh, in iTunes, if you just do, at least on a Mac, if you do Command-I, it opens up a little window and you can enter in all of that information. Uh, I use a program called Disco. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an Australian company. I think uh, Disco.ac is their website. 
they don't pay me, I don't work for them. I'm just, I'm just a fan. <laughs> um, but that's something that it's, uh, was designed originally by music supervisors in Australia and is really designed for the sync world. Uh, it's something that I love using. There are certainly other companies, uh, there's Source Audio, there's Sync Tank, and these things, these things are really designed to, you know, they're content management systems right. at the end of the day. But if you have a catalog of music that you're working with, they're really useful. And they give you ways to enter in all of these things that we're talking about, all of the tags, all of the ownership information, lyrics, and so on. I mean, at, at the bare minimum, I would say, who is the artist? What is the track title? Who owns it? Who is the mass? Who is the label? And who is the publisher? And who do you talk to? Who, who do you contact? contact right. Who do you contact? Yeah. Those things are utterly essential. And, and if you can include more information, all the better. Yeah, I know I get sent a lot of music um, and I'll go back in to clean out the songs that I'm just like, I can't remember what this is for or where it came from. And sometimes I'll go into the metadata to figure it out and there's nothing in there. So it just gets deleted. It just gets deleted. You know, I, I operate on the assumption that music supervisors are super busy. And if I get, you know, if, if I get 45 seconds of their time to quickly glance at or listen to something I've sent them, great. And if they can't find in those 45 seconds, who owns a song and who do I talk to? Like you say, nine times out of 10, they'll just say, that's ah, not worth it. Not worth the bother. And, and out it goes. And I'm surprised by how many people, including major labels, we're not just talking small artists, how, how many larger labels and publishers will send really, really sloppy metadata. And it's, uh, it's, it's not, it's not a winning combination. I think there's a real breakdown between the, um, studio and the mastering engineers and the engineers and the artists in terms of that, because I think that a lot of artists expect that when they get their music back from their mastering engineer or their, um, regular engineer, that the songs are in the right, you know, they're set up for like an album, right? We're, we're going, we're bypassing a situation now where I think that the, the files used to go be sent off for CDs, right? They used to be sent off to someone else and now they're just being given straight to the artist. And if you don't have a lot of, um, you know, technical experience or experience in doing that, I think they just expect that when they get those back and they say master and gigahertz and all that extra stuff on there, that that's the way that they're supposed to be. But, you know, you've got to go in and clean up all of that mess because they're not, they're not thinking about your music being able to be um, found after the fact. They're just like giving you your masters. And more, and more, I, I completely agree. And moreover, I think a lot of it is knowing your audience. You know, the, the way that you send music to a music supervisor is not necessarily the same way that you would send music to, let's say, a journalist. I'm not suggesting that music supervisors don't care about uh, an artist's story or press clips or videos. They may. But really, presumably, you know, they're working on a project. They need the right song for the scene. So knowing that the band has played this venue or has a neat video, or there's a cool story behind them. It's cool. I'm not saying that, you know, if you have a fascinating, a band with a fascinating story, of course you want to put that forward, but it's really much more about the music. Uh, 
So I'm much more concerned, you know, what's the BPM? How fast or slow is this song? What are the lyrics about? That's what's going to make the final difference between having a song used and not used. I think you hit the nail on the head there. And it's something that I explain to my clients a lot where they think I'm just sending a song over to a writer and they're clicking on the song and saying, oh, that's great. I'm going to write about that. And that's not how that works at all. They need to know everything about the band and what's going on and what's the angle because they're not just going to stick it up on the internet and say, listen to this, it's cool. They're going to have to write something about it. So they've got to figure out, is there anything to write about? Because if there's not, there's another artist that's just as good as this artist and there might be a better story with that one. But with sure. what with music license, I'm mean, sorry, sync licensing, you know, they already have in their mind what exactly they need. And they're just where where is it? I'll know it when I hear it. I'll know it when I hear it. You know, I'll know when I hear it. And it does come down to the music. Certainly there are times, you know, we'll, we'll have a, an ad campaign or a show on MTV. And, they, you know, they want an artist that fits a certain demographic, of course, you know, or, or you know, they want something that's hot and new or they want something that's from a certain year. So it's not, it's not that the story is irrelevant, but it is secondary. It does take a backseat to the song itself. I think what's cool about that is it really is, and in some ways, I'm not gonna say it's a level playing field because nothing in life is, is truly a level playing field. Uh, but if you have a great song, you can, I and mean, this is one of the, you know, you can be an artist making music out of your bedroom in Timbuktu. It really doesn't, you know, some of the stuff we work with is from artists. You look at their spot, you know, how many plays they've got on Spotify. It's nothing special. And yet, if they have the right song, we can absolutely get them in a, in a big TV show and movie and ad and video game. It's a really exciting feeling. It just goes back to there's no one path or no one set of rules for success in any part of the music industry. You know, it's kind of all about just keeping yourself out there, looking for as many opportunities as can come through and being ready for them when they do show up. Absolutely. So I don't want to drill down too deeply into this, but are you just like, are you sending over a player of like multiple songs because they're looking for X, Y, Z and you're like, okay, try these 10 tracks. Are you sending over one song at a time and going, this is the one. And then they're going, nah, I mean, how's that dynamic work? It depends. Uh, I kind of have two ways of pitching, and I, I, I call it proactive and reactive, or push and pull. Uh, certainly, I'll, we'll put together samplers, uh, send them out to, you know, we have a mailing list of, you know, maybe 500 music supervisors in the U.S., but also all over the world. Here's some, you know, here's some stuff that we've been listening to lately. Here's some really epic, you know, bombastic cinematic music. Here's some music from a certain country. Here's some vintage stuff. Here's some mm-hmm. you know, lyrical themes, so on and so forth. Uh, that's the proactive way of doing it. And it can be great because it's just a way of reaching people whom you might not reach otherwise. When I do that, you know, again, it's, it's about putting your best foot forward. I'm not sending a playlist with 40 tracks. I'm assuming that nobody has the time for that. So we'll send five mm-hmm. and say, you know, hey, listen, if you like it, we have 500 more. Right. But a lot of it, though, is reactive, and although I, I realize the word reactive maybe has a negative connotation, in the world of sync, it's, it's a good thing. I mean, it's, we have people coming to us with briefs. You know, these are uh, music supervisors whom we have established relationships with, and they have a specific need. They're looking for 
you know, it can be something really, really broad. You know, we're doing a commercial, we just want something uplifting and energetic. Or it can be something extremely specific, you know, Thai psych rock from 1973, which is a search that I got last week. Um, we'll put together a list for them. I try not to go above, you know, five, 10 tracks. It depends. Some people, you know, some supervisors will say, give me everything you got. Sometimes they'll say we're, we're working on the new, uh, the new season of a TV show and we sort of want a, um, a, a bucket of songs from which we can draw over the course of the season. Other people say we're in a terrible hurry. It's an emergency. We need something and we need it fast. Send us your three best ideas, no more. Uh, but I always operate on the assumption, you know, I don't want to do a data dump on people. Sending someone, because I feel the same way when an artist I haven't worked with reaches out to me. You know, send, send a couple songs, send your, put your best foot forward and say, you know, if you want more, I've got more. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes I'll hear something that I like and I'll say, yeah, absolutely. You know, let's, I, want to, I want to do a deep dive. Uh, but I, I think generally speaking, less is more. Uh, unless you truly, you know, sometimes I truly, truly, truly think that every song I'm sending is, is absolutely golden. But, you know, I realize it can be a Sophie's choice sometimes, you know, taking a 10-track playlist and cutting it in half. But it's smarter. Yeah. I it's mean, I'm board. sure it just depends on the the person that you're talking to where how much control they have over, you know, they might, they might be like, I can decide to send me like three or four tracks and I'll decide I'll be done with it. And then they might have to present it to other people or multiple people and want to look like, look at all that I have to offer you. You know, we should be able to pick something out of these 10 tracks, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, one thing that is easy to forget is we're, we're all links on a chain. Right. So, you know, you have the, let's take a, a TV show, for example. So you have like the network and then the network has a director and a producer and the director has a certain creative vision, uh, but they're too busy to do the music on, all on their own. So they hire a music supervisor. The music supervisor's job is to come to them with a bunch of ideas that will work within their budget, but maybe it's an obscure genre or the music supervisor doesn't know quite what to do. So they come to someone like me, a sync agent, or they go to publishers or labels that they work with. And, you know, we go into our labels and the artists. So, you know, we're all kind of uh, links on the, on, in, in this ecosystem. Uh, I've had music supervisors tell me that, you know, often, you, you know, almost by definition, music supervisors have, you know, they know a lot about music. They're mm -hmm. cool. They know the hip underground stuff. And sometimes that works, but if you're working on a, a Hallmark Christmas movie, you can't include that super edgy underground track. You, you know, you have to you have to give the director what they want. Right. Uh, or it's then it's my job when someone comes to me looking for something that's a little more down the middle or a little more mainstream to not just send them what I think is the coolest track, but send them what I think the project actually requires. Can you talk about any um, cool projects you've worked on recently? Sure. God, we'll rub it in. <laughs> um, a lot of things pending that I'm not allowed to talk about, but there are cool ones that I've done lately. Um, I did a really, really cool project with uh, Apple recently. Mm -hmm. I've done a couple of them, actually. We just had an ad go live in, uh, in Brazil. Um, 
but the one that I have in mind was uh, a project that we did specifically for Thailand. So in Thai, in traditional Thai culture, this was news to me, I think it's super cool, every day of the week is associated with the color. So Sunday is yellow, and Monday is blue, and Tuesday is green, and Wednesday is orange, and so on. So we did a project um, in conjunction with Apple, in conjunction with a record label, uh, a contemporary electronic label out of Bangkok called Comet Records, we, uh, for the shot on iPhone campaign for their, their uh, camera series. Uh, oh, I think they have that. I think that's the first thing that comes up when you log on to TikTok. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, cool. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, so this, this is a really cool project. It was these seven little, um, you know, 12 second long Instagram things with each one with photos and videos in a certain color by Thai artists. And each one had a custom composed uh, track that sort of evoked those colors. Uh, that was a really fun one that we did. Uh, we recently, uh, we did a fantastic, um, worked with a, an Israeli band called Lola Marsh. Uh, they did a cover of the Frank and Nancy Sinatra song, uh, Something Stupid. A mm-hmm. uh, custom recorded cover of that that was in the TV show uh, Better Call Saul. Oh, great. I won't, for, I, I, I won't. For fear of revealing spoilers, I won't say more than that, but I will say, I mean, the episode actually, um, it actually won an award at the Guild of Music Supervisors Awards last year for uh, Best Original Music for Television. Uh, So yeah, we do a lot, you know, it ranges from custom and bespoke stuff, you know, from getting songs and pretty big ad campaigns down to, honestly, some of the stuff I'm the proudest of is when we're able to get something really, really off the wall and really left wing, I'm sorry, no, left field rather, <laughs> or left wing. Um, it, you know, it, we, uh, there's a movie that came out a couple of years ago called Green Room mm-hmm. uh, with Patrick Stewart. It's, like a, it's a horror movie. Uh, you know, we managed to get like a, like a crazy grindcore song into it. Uh, this is not what you would think of as sync music. Or uh, a couple of weeks ago, I work with a vintage, um, Portuguese solo accordionist. Her name was Eugenia Lima. She was the, the the queen of Portuguese accordion, and we managed to get one of her tracks into a uh, Google ad. So I love you know I love being able to find something that's really musically unique, and maybe won't work for ninety nine out of a hundred different uh, contexts. But when you find that one context that it works, it's it's a really thrilling feeling to be able to face it. Do you find yourself watching television shows and paying more attention to the music cues than what's happening? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a music discovery tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit about how it can be good just purely from a you know, financial standpoint for an artist. Mm-hmm. You know, if you get a song in a TV show or a movie or a commercial, it can be good money. But there is absolutely something to be said for music discovery if you have a song in a, in a big commercial if you have a song over the end credits of a you know really powerful episode of a netflix tv show um i mean shazam i have shazam like it's on the front of my phone mm-hmm. because if i'm watching something and i want to hear what a song is before it goes away i know you know i, I tell artists you know, one says 
oh, just, you know, you should do this for lousy money or do it for free because it's good exposure. That, that I feel, is a bit of a disingenuous argument. Uh, but for me as a music fan, absolutely, I think, film, TV, commercials, and video games. I mean, I looked up who the music supervisor was for Killing Eve. Yeah, we had something in uh, we had something in, in Killing Eve recently, and it's like that's one of those shows that you watch and then you go and you look up the soundtrack on Spotify. Right. I was just like, "What is that music?" That's this the music cues. I was like, "Those are crazy music cues." It's like a whole nother character, you know. And it was like subtext to what they were you know, foreshadowing and all that. And you're like, "Wait, are they telling us that this is going to happen?" But I also want to um, ask you about what you just mentioned about the payment, what kind of numbers are we talking about for musicians? What are the different kind of, uh, you know, amounts people can get paid? I know that there are small projects and big projects, but um, what are some of the numbers? So it's hard. I don't want to give you what seems like an evasive or a slippery answer. Uh, I want to answer as, as honestly as I can. That being said, of course, it depends. It, it really does. Um, it depends on, on a couple things. Uh, the first and most obvious is what is the project? You know, a tiny little indie art house film, you know, where they barely have two pennies to rub together. You know, the, the, the money you're getting might be nominal. A major international TV commercial, you know, if it's going to be online and on TV and, you know, it's going to be ubiquitous for a major brand, a car company, or a fast food brand, it's presumably going to pay a lot more. Um, there are certain things that I look at when we're going into a negotiation for something. So first is, yeah, what's the format? Is it a TV show, is it a movie, is it a commercial? Um, if it's an ad, what's the duration? You know, TV shows and movies, they almost always want the song for perpetuity because they don't want to renegotiate the music rights. You, know, you assume with a, a TV show, it's going to live forever on... Netflix or a streaming some service. streaming service. Yeah. But for a commercial, you know, it's not necessarily going to live forever. So is this going to be, let's say it's going to be on TV. It's going to be on for a month, three months, a year. Um, if it's online, is there going to be paid media behind it? Are they, you know, are they going to have it show up, you know, when someone clicks on a YouTube video or is it just going to sort of live on the brand's own Instagram feed, for example? Um, it also, of course, has to do with uh, the length of the usage. Is, is it a little snippet, or do they want to use the whole song over the end credits? Uh, how badly do they want the song? You know, in, in other words, if it's a rock song being played in a scene, you know, played in the background, the scene at a restaurant, and all the music really does is kind of establish a sense of place. Oh, we're at a bar, and there's some music playing at the bar. You have to realize that maybe you're not in a position to, you know, drive too hard. It could be but anything. It could be anything. And, and just like you say with trying to get press coverage, you know, if mm -hmm. they're offering you $3,000 and you don't want to do it, there's probably a band waiting behind you that'll do it for $1,000. So that's something to bear in mind. If it's a song that's really, really unique, either because it's a, a big name artist or because it's just such a unique track, you know, it's hard to replace Bohemian Rhapsody. I, I think another thing that's worth considering is that some, some licensing uses um, pay royalties, pay residuals, and others don't. 
Right. Uh, my job as a sync agent is to negotiate the upfront fee, the master side fee and the publishing side fee, which will, except for in the case of covers, will almost always be 50-50. Mm-hmm. So whoever owns the master recording and whoever has the publishing rights, that, that money is, is split. Right. Uh, but assuming for the sake of argument that as an, you've written a song yourself, uh, you know, make sure that you are signed up with ASCAP, BMI. So it's, some, it's something to consider. Uh, you know, so there are certain things like MTV, for example, and not, not to disparage them because I've done a lot of stuff with them. You know, their, their fees are not ginormous. But if you're on a show that's being, you know, played all the time, you know, that check in the mail that you're getting from ASCAP or BMI, you know, it might not, you're not going to be able to buy a yacht with it, mm-hmm. but it's something to consider when, when you're thinking about the actual, you know, the, the, the financial angle of it. So say yes to that reality show that's in constant reruns. <laughs> say yes to the reality show that's in constant reruns. I mean, you know, I realize, you know, so you have library music and production music. And I do think, you know, there is a certain point at which a fee is simply too low and, and not fair to the artist. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of crummy music out there. And, and, you know, the point is not about making it a race to the bottom because I don't, I don't like to encourage the use, you know, you shouldn't be, you want to use a song, you should, you should have more than 50 bucks to pay for it. You should right. be able to, you know, you should be able to reimburse the artist properly. But that being said, you know, a- assuming the usage is non-exclusive and assuming that it's not something really odious or offensive or awful, by and large, I encourage artists to do it. it, it it's a way to get your name out there. It's a way, a way to get at least a little bit of money, if not more. And, and, and it, it can sort of have a snowball effect. Yeah. Uh, and how often does it work out that you're asking people to record something specific, like you mentioned earlier? Uh, and I assume that pays more, right? It all depends. It all depends. I've had, again, it sort of comes down to negotiation. Um, how desperate is the, you know, how desperate is the client for your artist and your artist specifically to do something or, or, you know, ultimately are they reaching out to 15 different bands and all having them going to the studio on spec? Uh, I think certainly, and especially these days, you know, having easy access to the recording equipment in the studio um, is a real advantage. I found that artists who are you know, stylistically nimble, who can kind of, you know, I have a few people I work with who just whatever I throw at them. So we need a Scott Joplin style ragtime piano thing. Great. I'm on it. I'll have something for you in three hours. Um, I think it's important and certainly I encourage artists and artists who are able to do that. I often tell them to sort of create a separate reel saying, you know, here's my artist work. Here's the stuff that I've put out on my album, but here's some custom work that I've done. There's a soundtrack or jingles or what have you. Um, nobody can do everything. And I think it's okay. I actually, when, when someone says, Oh, I do everything. I, you know, there's literally no genre I can't handle. I, I kind of say some bullshit. You know, it, it, it's okay to say, my specialties are A, B, and C, and here are some things that I can't do. Uh, because the artists that I work with, if someone wants a you know, big symphonic trailer style cue, there's some people go to. And if they want a goofy, jingly Casio thing, 
it's a different set of artists who I go to. So it's completely fine to specialize. Um, but the ability to, cre to create custom work, or at the very least to have, you know, have the stems and the, the instrumentals for the tracks you've already created is really valuable. I don't know if this sounds dumb, but do you encourage your artists that you work with to kind of share that side of them when they're creating music on their socials and to like get sure. out there that way? Sure. I mean, you, you'd be surprised how many, I mean, there's a lot of artists out there who there's their, their artist name, their band, their, you know, this is it's them creating their art and speaking from the heart. Music can be really out there. It can be really emotional. It can be really non-commercial. Oftentimes the same people under a different name or under their own name, their day job is they're, they're making jingles and fun little stuff in the studio. And it's, it's much, you know, it's much more commercial. You know, someone says, give us a suspense cue for a suspense scene and, and you know, a law and order episode. Um, so I understand certainly for, you know, they, they want to keep their, their personal art separate from their commercial work. Plenty of other artists, it's, hey, every, you know, it's, it's two sides of the same coin as far as they're concerned. And certainly if you had a song in a TV show, if you had a song in a movie, if you have a song that's in, you know, the new EA sports game, why wouldn't you want to talk about that? Because then it, then it becomes a selling point. And then that's the type of thing that you include as a bullet point in the press release that, that a publicist might send out. I um, see a commercial almost every day on MSNBC with the song in it is a song that I first heard on TikTok. It's Absolutely. like some pop song that I heard on TikTok and it was in every single video and now it's in commercials and now I can't get away from it. But I mean, like those, those songs, they get in your head and then I, these advertising agencies, they're jumping on them. Absolutely. We have art. We work with a French artist called Kid Francescoli. They have a track called Moon that I'm sure you'd hear it. I mean, it's, you know, on TikTok alone, it's millions and millions and millions. And, you know, like The Rock used it in one of his videos. And, I mean, this has absolutely catapulted their career. And, you know, you go and you look at Spotify and you look at their tracks, and this one is just far, far, far and away the most played one. And it's all from, it's all from TikTok. And it does begin to snowball. And then you start getting more requests and, you know, people start coming to you. You, you, know, you get to do more of the, uh, you get to react to incoming requests as opposed to kind of pushing the song out there. It's really interesting because obviously I'm reading the trades every day and I'm trying to keep up with the new press that's coming out about new artists and, you know, who's hot and who, you know, and I, I for the most part, you know, I think I'm on top of things. And then, like, I do go on something like TikTok and see, like, some songs trending. And then I go check it out on Spotify. And I'm like, this is 10 million uh, streams. And I've never heard of this person before. It's, I mean, in a way, it's, it's at least for me, as, you know, you, like I, I mean, we're, we're music industry people and we're, we're, we're in it, right? And yet, we all have blind spots. And I'm amazed sometimes by, you know, artists, huge artists that, you know, they might have a hundred million streams on Spotify and I've never heard of them. Right. And I listen to music like you. I mean, all day, all day every day. I'm every day. <laughs> it's, I mean, you know, to me, it's a wonderful thing. There's, there's this incredible, incredible wealth of music out there. And I think it's all the more reason why it's important that there be people like me, like you, 
I don't just mean the end. There's, there's hundreds, yeah. if not thousands of people in our positions, but who can kind of take that, just that deluge of music, weed out the crappity crap, and hopefully be able to present, you know, the find the diamonds in the rough. So do you work only with labels or do you work with um, independent artists also? Absolutely. Um, Do they just reach out to you via your website? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm not, I'm not coy about, I mean, my email address is dan at friendlyfirelicensing.com. I'm always happy to check out music. You know, these things that we've discussed, having the metadata, you know, one of the, I guarantee you when someone sends me music, one of the first things I'll, I'll ask is, who's the label? Who's the publisher? Are those samples? Mm-hmm. Those, are, those are just kind of foundational questions. Obviously, you know, it has to be something that I like. It has to be something that I feel is, is unique. You know, there are certain genres that we sort of feel we're, we're good on them. We try to be very choosy about what we take on. But at the same time, for artists, I mean, if I were an artist, I would only want to work with this sync agent who really wanted to work with me. Yeah. Uh, I certainly encourage artists. I mean, you know, there's a few ways to do this. Certainly, you can try and establish direct relationships with music supervisors. Um, be respectful. Get their name right. Do a little bit of research and actually learn, you know, who they are and what projects they've been working on. Um, but sync agents, either myself or there's a variety of sync agencies out there. If you if you're published, talk to your publisher. Ask who your publisher. You know, do they have an in-house person pitching for licensing? Are they collaborating with a third-party sync agent, you know, like us or someone else? You know, I feel if you're an artist and you're working with a pu- publisher, it's okay to be a little bit of a squeaky wheel and make sure that your music is sort of the front of mind for them. And Joe Rudge was also telling me that he works with a lot of distributors directly. Sure. I mean, there are, you know, a lot of the, di- like, let's take The Orchard, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, they will often have non-exclusive licensing uh, arrangements where they say, hey, if you want us to, in addition to making sure that your uh, album is up on uh, all the streaming services, you know, we have an in-house team and we'll pitch it. Uh, So if you're working with a digital distributor and they have a sync team, absolutely. You know, make sure the terms are fair. I I frown on uh, anyone who's pitching and taking an outrageously high uh, commission or percentage. Uh, there, there's a practice called retitling that which you can Google. I mean, it's, you know, it's technically, it's legal, but I find it to be pretty dubious. It's we're basically, you know, certain sync agents say, we're going to pitch your song. And if we get your song into this TV show, for example, we're actually going to resubmit it. We're going to re-register it with uh, BMI under a new name so that every time the song appears in that TV show, we get the money and not you. Mm-hmm. Again, it's, it's legal. If, you know, if you're open to it and, and, and the sync agency that you're working with has been transparent about the fact that they do that and, and why they do it, okay, fair enough. My personal opinion is that it's kind of a, I don't, I don't, it, yeah. it, 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 it feels sleazy to me. Um, right. So you know, always, always look at the terms. You know, if you're working with the sync agent, are they pitching you ex- on an exclusive basis or non-exclusive? Both are fair. Both are legitimate. But these are reasonable questions to, to ask. You know, because you are entrusting your music with someone else, and you know, you want to make sure that it's being pitched conscientiously. 
at the same time, I always say to artists, you know, understand that what we're doing is it's speculative. You know, I, none of us can snap our fingers and magically make something happen. All any of us can really do is kind of try and build relationships with music supervisors and, you know, get, get some songs in front of them that we feel really fit. And then, as I said, it's a whole chain of people and either the song works or it doesn't. It just seems like your best bet would be to connect um, with uh, someone who does sync licensing, who does the pitching like you, um, because you're going to reach out with multiple people that gives your someone's music multiple opportunities to be heard versus trying to reach out to individual music supervisors, you know, and mostly you're just going to be, you know, there's too many things in their inbox that they have to take care of than, you yeah. know, checking out some one or two random songs from someone they've never heard of and then getting back to them. You know, it sounds, seems like it's better. It's just the same thing that I would tell a musician about hiring a publicist. You know, you're welcome to try to reach out to these writers on your own, but you might get more traction if you reach out to someone who has pre-established relationships sure. with multiple places. It's, you know, it's about building a team and finding a reliable, trusted partner who's on your way then. Uh, you know, I don't want to put words in the mouths of music supervisors. Certainly, there's supervisors who've gone directly to bands, and that's fantastic. You, you know, if you're a band and you're friends with a supervisor, they approach you out of the blue. Awesome. Hell yeah. We're, you know, nurture that relationship. I think a lot of music supervisors, not only do they want to get the right music, they want to know that they're not, there's no nasty surprises down the road. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't want to get, they don't want to use a hip hop track or an electronic track and learn a day before, you know, the editing locks that there's a sample in it that hasn't been clear, you know? So it is, it is a relationship based industry. And I think a lot of music supervisors want to work with people who aren't going to, you know, who are, who are reliable yeah. partners. Um, yeah. That may, if you're a musician or an artist and you're listening to this interview, that may well be you. I'm, I'm not suggesting that artists aren't or can't be reliable but a music supervisor doesn't necessarily know that until they've met you and worked with you. They just don't know, right. which is why they often work to build relationships with directly with labels, publishers and sync agencies. Cause we do this for a living. And so hopefully most of us sort of know the pitfalls to avoid and, you know, the, the red flags to point out at a time. Right. All right. Well, great information. Any final thoughts, anything we didn't cover that you think is important? No, I mean, I guess I'd just reiterate what I said earlier. I think, I mean, you know, beyond the financial value in it, it's also it's an incredibly cool feeling to see your art also be incorporated in someone else's art. Um, you know, to get a song into a big TV show or, or, you know, or even just a tiny, you know, special little indie art house film is, I think, worth it. And so I encourage every band, every artist, especially if they have some extra time because, you know, they're not going out on the road, wherever they are in their career to think about how they can incorporate licensing or, or build a licensing strategy into their general uh, career. Roadmap. There's really not much to lose. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for spending the time, you know, and giving us all the great information. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And there you have it. Thanks again to Dan for taking the time to chat with me. To sum up what we talked about, there's never been a better time to put together a sync licensing plan for your music. And the best way to do that is to find a sync agent. 
you can certainly reach out to them on your own, but a better strategy may be to get an introduction. If you don't have any connections, it's time to start networking. You should be talking to other musicians and industry folks you know. There's tons of online groups you can join and virtual conferences you can attend. Where there's a will, there's a way. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in more insider information just like this, be sure to check out our weekly newsletter. You can sign up on sweetheartpub.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to be notified when the next one comes out. If you have a specific question, feel free to reach out. You can tweet me or shoot me an email. I'm not hard to find. The music in this episode was created by Frank Keith of Great Peacock. And big thanks to Brandon Kinder for producing this episode. Now, go do something useful. Mm